Hi, welcome back to another bonus episode of Speak Like a CEO, where we delve into the secrets and pitfalls of CEO communication. I'm Lena and I'm here with my co-host, Oliver. Hi there. So back at the start of May, we hosted a panel discussion on campaigning. It was called No Campaign, No Gain. Um, and we had five expert panelists from the politics, business and nonprofit world join us for what was suddenly an insightful conversation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, these, these five people are really amazing. And they all come from different walks of life. It was a very international panel. So we had Damien Buzelago, who's a candidate for the European Parliament, for Vault Europe, and uh, which is actually you know a pan-European, pro-European movement. And he's one of the co-founders. We had Valerie Mocca, who works for Nesta as a director there. Uh, and is really one of the leading figures in digital campaigning and uh, bringing digital skills to to everyone. We had Pia Frey, who is the co-founder of Opinionary, so she was very good at telling everyone, um, you know, what the quantitative analysis says. Uh, how do you sway people's opinions? Should you ask questions? How should they be phrased? What about different cultures? Uh, how do they react to certain questions? Um, so super insightful. We had Emery Carothers from the Mozilla Foundation and from Chicago, who was also in town for Republica and was a speaker there. Um, she was amazing. She had some uh, really great insights into emotion and uh, they've run some really, really successful campaigns taking on the likes of Facebook, Amazon, Walmart, and, and you know, be victorious at the end. So um, very interesting to listen to her. And uh, Paul Walter, who is in charge of communications for the German Startup Association. And uh, as you would expect from startups, um, they run some pretty cool uh, digital campaigns as well. So their combined expertise made for a really, really interesting conversation. Yeah, that was super incredible. The speakers there, they had really a lot of information to give away. And what was really interesting at the start is that we asked the audience, you know, what they thought about campaigning, like who's the best at campaigning and what's the most important element of campaigning. So many different answers in the room and so many different opinions from the panel too. Right, and uh, a lot of people said budget isn't important, but maybe is it really not important? Do we disagree? Do we disagree? (laughs) Did the panellists disagree? So what was the overarching theme of the event for you or what was the point of it? Um, The point of point of it was that um, you know in the age of constant distraction and information overload how do you actually reach your audiences and uh, campaigning is one of the few tools in the box which really work pretty well these days but you know most campaigns never make any impact whatsoever so why not and what distinguishes those that shake the world or really get you noticed from those who just you know fizzle out and nothing happens and that's really what we wanted to get to the bottom of and the other thing was that um, we can all learn from each other so people in non- the non-profit sector campaigners uh, business businesses, um, you know, startups, established corporates, politicians. I think we're all good at certain aspects and uh, we can learn a lot by listening to each other and exchanging sort of best practice. Exactly. And there are a few good examples of campaigns that have worked really well. Like here in Berlin, for example, there was this BVG campaign for International Women's Day where they reduced the price of the ticket by the amount that the um, gender pay gap is. Um, and that worked phenomenally well. That was really cool. Yeah, or the, the Ice Bucket Challenge. And now everyone says, well, can we have another Ice Bucket Challenge yeah. for my organisation, please? And obviously <laughs> it doesn't work like that. And conversely, we also remember the really bad campaigns where they got the messaging completely wrong. Yeah. Um, so it was really cool to see, I guess, what works, what doesn't work, um, and across industries as well. Yeah. So this this is a panel of about one hour with a short introduction by me and Bettina Hausmann, uh, our dear friend, and who was also a guest on the show a while ago. Um, so it's a bit longer than our usual episodes, but it's really worth listening to it, um, especially if you work in communications, marketing, PR, if you're uh, interested in politics or just want to figure out um, you know, how to get your message across in whatever arena of life. And there's some great tips for campaigning in it too. So Indeed. enjoy. Um, and if you're still interested at the end, we also have created an ebook on campaigning and what business 
businesses can actually learn from political campaigning. Um, so head to the show notes to get the link there. And we'll see you next week with another episode. See you next week. And if you're interested in receiving uh, more updates and exclusive content, go to speaklikeaceo.org uh, and sign up to the newsletter where we share some uh, insights and exclusive content. Enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to No Campaign, No Gain. Uh, my name is Oliver Aus. I'm the founder of EOEPSA Communications, and I'm here with Bettina Hausmann. Bettina is one of the leading international executive coaches and trainers. Uh, she's worked with professionals from over 100 countries, and she flew over from Brussels last night to be with us here tomorrow, uh, this morning. So thank you, Bettina. Thank you very much, and welcome to all of you. Do you hear me with the microphone? Good. Um, Actually, I did meet Oliver in the year 2000 in October in an elevator. And we had our first chat between the ground floor and the fifth floor. And actually, I thought, I like this guy, and he might be very smart. And so this is the beginning of a collaboration that lasts almost 20 years already. And I'm very, very happy to be here with all of you today. So we want to talk about campaigns this morning. So why are campaigns so important? Why have they gained in importance over the last few years? And I think it's because the traditional instruments of communications, our traditional toolbox, uh, well, is no longer as sharp as it used to be. So communications is, uh, sorry, campaigning is one of the few tools we have which, which, with which we can actually cut across and reach our audiences because we all suffer from information overload. So we really have to think hard about how we go about it. But the sad news is that most campaigns really don't make a splash. There are a lot of work, but there's not, nothing much coming out of them. But then again, there are other campaigns that really change the world or make a big splash. If you think about the ice bucket challenge, is there anyone in this room who does not remember the ice bucket challenge? Everyone does remember it. And when you think about the ALS disease, before the challenge, nobody would know the disease almost, and afterwards it got to great visibility. Then you have Fridays for the future, or for future. You do have, sadly, I'm based in Brussels, vote leave. All of those are campaigns that really, really worked. And today we will look into what's the magic recipe, what messages, what tone, what challenges, what channels, and also what's about the money in all this. Yeah, we look at the political arena. Uh, what's closest to the ice bucket challenge is probably Macron's presidential campaign, 2017. Now, he didn't run for uh, an established political party. As you know, he created his own movement, and he did that with a really impressive campaign, which was positive, and he positioned himself as you know, the, the guy who takes on the ossified French political system. Now, less positive, as Bettina mentioned, is, uh, was Brexit. Um, the Vote Leave campaign was unfortunately very effective. And what they managed with their Take Back Control slogan is probably convince enough people so that Brexit actually happened. And as laudable as the Remain campaign was, it just wasn't a great campaign. And many of you come from the business world. So it's not only about associations, about uh, policy and public policy, but... Uh, campaigns have become more and more important in the world of businesses. And when you look at some re recent campaigns, for instance, during Equal Pay Day here in Berlin, the Berlin Transport Society, they offered to lower the ticket uh, fares for ladies by 21% to raise awareness of the gender gap in salaries. 21% makes a real difference on a ticket. And that worked very, very well. And then again, in the same exact 
uh, thematic area, Gillette last year launched a viral campaign, The Best a Man Can Be, and Edeka tried to do a similar thing last week, and both got huge traction on gender stereotypes, and they backfired, big deal. So the question is, if you do a campaign and you don't dare to do anything, well, you might not get any visibility. But if you're perceived as overly bold, well, you have a lot of visibility, but it might not be favorable for you. So again, what's the right recipe? You guys are experts here in the room. We have our panel, but also many of you are in the realm of campaigning and in the business world. So we would, we would like to hear your view. Now, on this slide, you do have, A, we do have the Mindspace uh, login if anyone has no internet access. Do every, does everyone have internet access here? Anyone does not have? Okay, so then you go to www.menti.com. And I know that politely many of you have switched off your mobile phones. Well, okay, so we give you a minute to switch on again. You think so? <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. The second part of the instruction follows already, which is once you're on menti.com, you have a code which is on the right-hand side, upper right-hand side, over there. And we want to know what's the most important ingredient of a successful campaign. Hands up if you still need to vote. This is a very clear outcome. Beautiful. The message. No one, no one says budget, which is interesting. Well, this is a very interesting one, and I would like to hear from that panel afterwards, is it really not at all about budget? So, <laughs> so message is the big winner. Strategy comes clearly second, tone and person then afterwards. But very, very interesting that budget got zero vote, and so we have foot for thought already. We have a second one for you, now that you know how it works. So here comes the second question. Who tend to be the best campaigners? Business, startups, politicians, nonprofits, or others? So I've been voting for themselves now. <laughs> That is a super interesting one, because it started out... Oh, not done yet. Much less clear than the first one, yeah. Yes, but very interesting... Oh, oh, oh business is winning now. Very interesting. When it really? first started, really? <laughs> it said politicians. And then people said, well, I need to reflect upon that once more. And then the non-profits got high, because they can be very bold. And they are less afraid, probably. And in the end, the business won. So then again, the question of the budget, etc., will come to that as well. I would like to lead over the floor from you to the panel. And in the end, we will have a Q&A session with you again. So please, mind, in your mind, note down your questions so that really it won't get silent at that moment. Wonderful. Thanks, Bettina. So we have a fantastic panel here this morning uh, of leading international experts um, who come from very different fields, but they have one thing in common. They've all run really, really exciting campaigns, and we want to hear more about those. Um, we have Damien Boselager, who may soon represent us if you're German or live here in the European Parliament. Uh, he's the co-founder and the German lead candidate for Volt Europa, which is a pan-European and uh, pro-European political movement active across the EU. And uh, they're running a very interesting campaign on very little budget and very decentralized. So, hi, Damien. Hi. 
Wie Valerie Mocker, uh, Mocker, who is based in London, uh, but German, in town for Republica, where she spoke this week. Uh, she's director at the Nesta Foundation, and the Nesta Foundation is one of Europe's leading social innovation funds. You're campaigning for a future that belongs to everyone by means of digital campaigns, sorry, by digital skills, by spreading digital skills. And you've done some really interesting campaigns, for instance, with the British school system, which is quite stuffy, but you, manage, you are managing to digitalize them. So very curious to hear more about that. Hi, Valerie. With Paul Walter, who represents the German Startup Association, he's in charge there of uh, political communications and uh, communications and media. Um, obviously, the German Startup Association uh, wants to create a business environment that's startup friendly in Germany, not a small ask, I think. Um, and um, they are running some, as you would expect from a startup association, really interesting digital bold campaigns as well. We have another guest from uh, overseas, Anne-Marie Carothers, who's from Chicago, uh, in town also because she spoke at Republica, so great to have you here all the way. Um, Anne-Marie represents the Mozilla uh, Foundation. Mozilla is probably known to most people. You're campaigning for an open and accessible internet. You've run some really, really interesting campaigns, taking on uh, you know, the giants of Silicon Valley, like Amazon and Facebook, but also Walmart. Um, so we want to hear more about that from you. With Pia Frey, who is the co-founder of Opinory, and Opinory is all about opinions. Um, she um, has also written a number one Amazon bestseller, uh, based here and in New York, and uh, Opinory is also present in London, so you're spreading across continents. And um, I think you, you pitched to Angela Merkel once, is that right? Say again. You pitched to Angela Merkel once? You did not. No. no. You, but, <laughs> that's the next thing on your list, I think. And. Uh, you wrote an Amazon bestseller. That's certainly on your, on your CV. That, that's correct. <laughs> Wonderful. So she can tell us what, how opinions are formed and how do we sway opinions, because at the end of the day, campaign is about convincing people and swaying people's opinions. So that's, that's where your expertise will come in. So let's start with Damien. What's, uh, tell us a bit about Volt Europa and your campaign. You've been running for you know, two, two years, I think, now, pretty much. Yeah, so... When I thought about no campaign, no gain, I thought about the two different campaigns that I already experienced. So the first one was really coming from the three founders which started this uh, movement around a little more than two years ago to um, basically build it to 30,000 people that are now active across the continent. And the second one is the real traditional campaign, meaning like trying to win these elections now for the uh, European Parliament. So I think there are probably learnings from both, um, but from the first... I think it's mostly that uh, it's really centered around people. So we had some digital elements of uh, putting Facebook events out there and boosting them like in a very traditional fashion, I think. But then having a very standardized presentation that people, even though we wouldn't know them, could use um, and we could just coach them like maybe via phone call, if possible, in person, in a, like in a kind of a spreading kind of way, in a movement kind of way, um, that was helpful. So there's some like very fixed elements and some very flexible. And how do you differ uh, from the traditional political parties, which are quite monolithic and focused on one country, obviously? I think we grow. That's a big difference. Um, so I think it has something to do with the energy and um, the, the lack of budget that it re was really driven by word of mouth. I think there were times when we had uh, 2,000, 3,000 uh, people in our database active um, as city leads or whatever they were, and we had, I think, 500 Facebook likes. There was just like a, a time when we just spread and people said, this is cool, we want to, uh, yeah, we want to get active, we like the energy, we like the boldness of it, or, or the idea of a European party. Mm -hmm. yeah. Valerie, um, 
Tell us a little bit about um, the Nesta Foundation and the campaigns you've been doing, especially I'm, I'm quite interested to hear how you, how you digitalize the British school system. Yes. Uh, as he said, one of the things that gets me out of bed and many of my colleagues is that we are fighting for a future that belongs to everyone. And for us, that means that technology and digitalization, which is changing our society so much, needs to be in the hands of everyone, right? So everyone needs to be a, able to be a digital maker and not just consume technology, but build it and shape it and employ it to create the world around them. And um, if you really want to do that, so that everyone has those skills and everyone is, has also the confidence to use technology, then you do need to get it into schools and into the national curriculum because otherwise what happens is that um, the kids whose parents pay attention to this or who might have the money to send them to a kind of, you know, code club or, or something like that will make sure that their kids have those skills, but then the, the kids who come from different types of backgrounds or families who are not paying attention to that are, are not going to have any of that, right? So, um, you know, we, we fund a lot of technologies, a lot of social innovations, so not just digital skills, but, you know, apps that help you when you have a heart attack or, you know, technology that helps companies and make more gender-neutral hiring decisions and so on and so forth. So a lot of the things that, that are good for you and me in our daily lives, but that the free market wouldn't fund as such, and traditional VCs wouldn't fund as such. And um, uh, we, we, as part of this, are not just a funder, but we also need to shape the whole system so that, you know, everything we, we support can basically be nested within society. And one of the things that we, we achieved, and I think that was our most successful campaign, was that we got um, coding and, and computing into the national curriculum uh, in, in the UK uh, in 2013-2014. Um, I see on my card that you pitched to Angela Merkel. Apologies. Yes, so that's right. Shouldn't have a glass of wine last night, probably. Um, what did you pitch to, to her? And was it successful? Um, <laughs> so, what, what did I pitch? So, I, I also I pitched that Germany also needs an innovation fund that is focusing on social innovation because, you know, in the UK you have organizations like Nesta um, that have, you know, Nesta has half a billion euros and we use that exclusively to fund social innovations, innovations and technology that help people in their daily lives. And Finland has a similar fund that's called Sidra and, um, you know, other countries are doing that. And in Germany we are very much funding with a kind of technology top-down approach where we say we fund technology and at some point we hope that it's going to do some good for people no? and we don't have a dedicated organization so um, so that's what I pitched uh, well as you can see we don't have this organization yet so uh, you know key it's work uh, in progress it, it, it definitely yeah. is work in progress I can come in the discussion a little bit to to what some of the maybe pros and cons and challenges are across different countries and, and why things worked in the UK and maybe not yet in others, but if I just answer the second part of your question around um, uh, our campaign in the UK around digital skills. So I guess there are kind of three things that we learned from that, no? how, we, how we actually got things into the curriculum. And those don't have to do with the fact that 
um, the UK doesn't have these 16 Bundesländer. That's what I hear a lot in Germany, that people say, oh, we can't learn anything from other countries who already have uh, coding inside the school curriculum because we are so different and so special, right? Every country is different, every country is special. But there are a few learnings that, that I think we could apply here in Germany, and the, the three were, so firstly, what we've done is um, we've first funded a lot of practical solutions that we could then take back into politics and into the media, because that is one of the things. I think when, when you find technology and things that lie in the future, so to speak, it's really hard to imagine what the future could look like. You need to be able to feel it and to experience it. So we funded a lot of solutions that could already be tested within schools and that could already help teachers be trained to, to teach coding and computing and you know how you get technology into schools and so on and so forth. And that really helped us to then go back into our campaign and say, hey, we are not just talking about how the future should look like, but here are little sandboxes, little, little spaces where you can actually feel and touch the future. So that was the first one. The second one was that um, you do need to think about how you wrap your topic within something that your country and your government in this case really cares about, right? And where you have other actors who might not have an interest in your topic per se, but they have an interest in their own success. So in that case, where the, the kind of entry point we used is we looked at the games and visual effects industry in the UK and we did quite a lot of research into how digital skills will be needed in that sector. No? Because that is a sector that is super important for the UK, and the creative industries are, have, have quite, a, quite a lot of power and a strong voice. Um, so that, you know, kind of wrapping a, it a, within this narrative allowed us to, to also maybe get some support and the open ears of people who don't care about schools and digital skills necessarily, but they care about the success of a really important industry. And the third thing that we learned is um, that... Um, it's, I mean, it always works better if you work in partnerships. No, it's always better together. Uh, and um, we partnered in, in that campaign with various different organizations from, you know, the Raspberry Pi Foundation um, that produces little computers that you can get into schools up to the BBC. And actually then, you know, the, the, this campaign of digital skills is ongoing because the you know the, the kind of needs are even in the UK constantly changing, and um, uh, with the BBC at some point we ran this campaign for a whole year where the, where we managed to get, convince the BBC to put digital skills as a topic into a lot of their TV programs, into their shows, into radio. They produced new types of shows and so on and so forth, and that I think was really important because it you know it broke up this topic that suddenly wasn't only part of the round tables and these kind of, you know, specific newspapers, but it got it into people's homes. Yeah, that, that's quite a powerful coalition. So we've heard from political candidates, we heard from the non-profit sector very successfully. Paul, uh, you represent business, but not any business, but uh, startups. To what extent do your campaigns differ from traditional corporates or, you know, the other um, speakers we've just heard? Um, yes, um, as you said before, the German Startup Association tries to provide good framework for startups in Germany uh, for being founded and to grow. And um, what differs is maybe the, the, the speed and the, the, the level of courage. Um, for example, we did a campaign one year ago um, where the new coalition was formed in Germany, SPD and CDU, and they presented their uh, like government and, and they presented it and there was no ministry for digitization. And we were very surprised, and other organizations and people were very surprised that there is not such a ministry. And so we um, did a campaign about that, then we started a petition. 
and it was uh, what we did. It was very fast. So I think on the Thursday they presented the government structure. Um, on Saturday, uh, our chairman Florian and our vice chairman Sasha and me, we um, we texted about that and what what we're going to do and created the idea to start a petition. Um, uh, as an association, it's a very um, yeah, activistic uh, kind of uh, thing to do. On Sunday, we invited the webmaster to the WhatsApp group. On Monday, the, the landing page was ready. Um, on the Tuesday, I called the Handelsblatt, and on Wednesday, um, the Handelsblatt um, opened up its economy part of the newspaper with the campaign, and the rest of the week, there was like a big buzz in social media, TV, RDCDF, they all came to us, and I think um, it's about timing. I think timing, it wasn't, it wasn't a, um, an answer. Um, uh, uh, it's a good point, timing, yeah. But timing, is, I think it's very important. Um, and I think there are two kinds of uh, timing. Um, either there is already like a momentum about the topic you're talking about and there's a bus out there and you just jump on the train. Or, um, that maybe sounds a bit stupid, but I think it's true, there's zero momentum about the topic you want to talk about it. So there's, there's like a vacuum, but you think um, as a communicator there is this elephant in the room. And you should, and you would love to talk about this, but n nobody talks about this elephant. So there's a likelihood that other people think there is this elephant is very high. And in such a situation, when your uh, campaign kicks in this situation, I think I think uh, um, you're going to succeed as well. And what was the outcome of that campaign for those who, who don't know in the room? Um, the outcome is that we now have Dorothy Bear. Dorothy Bear is the state secretary for digitization in the Bundeskanzleramt in the Chancellery. And um, we did, uh, also we did testing, um, um, so we, we, we made a poll and, and we asked people, um, do you, what's your opinion, do you want to have a, like a ministry for digitization in Germany? And at the beginning of our campaign on Wednesday, um, like the, the yeses were going up and the noes were going down, so we really had an impact, we tested it, we had an impact in, in the opinions of the population. And we had the effect that we now have to go to bear. And um, I know from some people um, who should know um, that our campaign um, and the petition, 10,000 people signed the petition, stuff like that, um, really did had an impact on the You mentioned timing, but also speed, right? Because you only had a few days, really, to yes. pull this off. And, and, and speed. How, how did you do that? Um, as, as speed is very important because I think um, in 2019 and uh, 2020, um, what happens in the, the cycles of, of uh, attention and the speed of attention really speeds up. So I think campaigns uh, nowadays or in the future going to be, um, have, they have to adapt to that speed. Um, I think if, if you just imagine your, like your social, media, um, uh, social media channels, um, think of the, the, the topics that were around in the last like four weeks. I think you sh you're going to be surprised um, of the number and of the cycles of the of the different topics. So campaigns will have to adapt. Campaigns, I think, they're going to be shorter but more intense. Climax direct on the, at the beginning. Did you use most? You mentioned Handelsblatt, which is a powerful you know newspaper here. But you, I guess you also use sort of digital channels. And were there any particular ones that that worked for you? Of course, um, Twitter is uh, very very important for us because we're an association. Our target group are politicians and uh, journalists, um, so Twitter is very important. Of course, we do Facebook, we do a bit of Instagram, but um, 
when it comes to digital channels, um, it's, it's Twitter, I would yeah. guess. It's interesting, both of you said basically teaming up with a powerful medium like BBC or Handelsblatt can really move the dial and sort of get, get it out of the digital world in the you know, sort of more traditional world as well, I suppose. Anne-Marie, you're here from the States, so we had some three European speakers. Um, obviously very interested in your perspective on the other side of the pond, and, and how did you take on Amazon, uh, Facebook, uh, Walmart, I mean, these corporate giants, and be successful in that? So the most important communication and advice I was ever given was that whenever you're about to give out information, know that people at the end of the day are going to misremember the information. They may even forget you, but they'll remember the emotion of your message. And if there's anything we can really learn right now about some amazing and disturbing campaigns we've seen, uh, is anything from Barack Obama's Hope and Change campaign to the Take Back Control, uh, Vote Leave, and Make America Great Again, is that these campaigns are either leaving people acting on hope or they're acting on fear. And we need to remember that we're human and understanding human psychology and that we're all on a level of extreme stress right now and instability. And all our body wants is, is control, which so many other major campaigns are acting on. But even looking at it from a neuroscientist's perspective, when you're under uh, extreme control, uh, stress, your brain does two things. Your amygdala, which is the emotional center, grows, making your fear response grow. And your hippocampus shrinks, which makes it harder to make decisions and more difficult to learn new facts and extremely difficult to actually turn off your stress response to things. So by recognizing that people act on emotion and recognizing we're all going in this, in this stressful space, um, we've learn that people need solutions. They need, we need to be very clear on what you can do, what you have the power and control to do to make positive change in this world. So some examples that Mozilla have, has done very successfully, uh, the first of which is privacy not included. Now, we've had a huge growth of internet-connected devices, from Alexas to Fitbits um, to even spin machines are now all connected to the internet. And they all look fun and shiny and new, but many people aren't recognizing that they can easily be hacked, um, and there's a lot of security issues. But with so many new products all the time, it's difficult, like, who's gonna go do the research? Therefore, Mozilla took it upon ourselves with our expertise and our resources to take a bunch of researchers and actually look at the top products that were being put out into the market and easily score using even emojis from a smiley face to, a, to like, an, it's okay, to a grumpy face, to visually communicate and give a guide to people on what technology out there is safe and fine to use and what are things that you should maybe consider not purchasing for your family. And by visually communicating that and providing easy, actionable steps, we entered 
we got to a whole new demographic we actually never really got before. I, I famously joke this was the first time that some of my older relatives uh, called me and were like, oh, we heard Mozilla on the news today because it was on Good Morning America, <laughs> uh, pointing to your privacy not included. And I really think that, um, as you said, by partnering with bigger media, we were able to reach a whole new demographic, but it only started because we easily handed people solutions and a way, uh, and, and putting them in the control of them having the answers. Was there a tagline or a slogan linked to the hackable toys? How did you capture people's emotion? We would say private, uh, the, the campaign was, was titled um, uh, Privacy Not Included. And we've done similar things of, of pointing out, like, public by default. If you can stick to three words, I would stick with three words. <laughs> and how, how did Amazon and uh, Walmart react to that? So with Amazon, um, how we moved on with this Internet of Things campaign, um, a lot of uh, feedback we get from major platforms of, like, well, we don't really need to make sure that your device isn't hackable because people just simply don't care about privacy and security. And unfortunately, they have the statistics to back that up because they don't see a huge change when things are pointed out because we feel like um, you know, uh, data breaches are happening all the time now. So what we did is we created a petition for Cloud Pets. Now, Cloud Pets was a toy sold to children that was quickly, that kids could like talk to, and it was quickly discovered that people could just be listening in on your home by easily hacking these cloud pets, and they're very insecure. So we, we created this campaign and, and asked for people's petitions of like, you know, these companies don't think you care about privacy security, but these are the issues, and this is, this is a real threat in your home. And we got, uh, I think, I'm gonna say, I, I, a few hundred thousand. I, I'm gonna. Oh, I, yeah. I don't don't triple check me. Um, but we got a, a mass amount of people signing their petition saying, "No, we care about this." And it was to such an extent that Amazon stopped selling the product. Walmart, which is one of the biggest retailers in the states, stopped selling the product. Wow. Um, Pia, you've heard a lot about campaigns and how campaigns are run. I mean, Opinionary has worked with um, brands like The Times, Huffington Post, Toyota, MasterCard. Your tagline is, we make opinions matter. And I guess campaigning is, at the end of the day, a way to shape people's opinions and hopefully even change people's opinions. What have you learned by interacting with tens of millions of people online about opinions and how they can be changed? Uh, first of all, I think we learned that um, our claim actually shouldn't be make opinions matter, but make questions matter, because that's the way how we capture people's opinions and how we enable our um, partners, brands and publishers to build a more direct relationship with the audience and to drive uh, awareness uh, in our network. And the way it works is that um, sometimes when you read an article, there is a question in within the article and uh, a graphic, like, for example, a little speedometer where you can place yourself and then see how your opinion relates to other readers' opinion. And, uh, yeah, so it started from a question where we were thinking about how we can enable um, um, publishers back then to build better relationship with the, their users outside of Facebook and uh, on their own sites and on their own terms and turf. And uh, the way questions are asked matters a lot um, to how users uh, respond and uh, how engaged they, uh, they are. And 
yeah, how they position themselves. So questions are not innocent at all. We are not an uh, opinion research company. That's not our business. And we don't aim to change people's opinions. We're neither Cambridge Analytica. Um, but it's uh, mostly about um, driving awareness and understanding and converting users on terms of, uh, in the interest of our partners. Yeah. No, sorry, I didn't mean to suggest that you try to sway people's opinion. I think people who campaign trying to do that. Yeah. Um, so, so who is particularly good at this? How, how do you know which questions to ask? I guess it's, it's about the research, so, isn't it? Um, we became quite good at it because, <laughs> no, because we do it on behalf of our partners. So we address uh, about uh, 69 million monthly users with questions and therefore learn what they respond to and how it works. And it differs a lot between markets. We operate in Germany, US, and UK mainly. And uh, it even differs between um, like environments from publisher to publisher. So for example, in, uh, in Germany, um, male audiences are very responsive to should questions. Should Angela Merkel cha change whatever? Whereas um, in the US, uh, audiences are more responsive to questions that address them personally. Do you think that? Um, do you feel like? Uh, Germans don't like that so much. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> Is it, do you see a lot of differences between different countries? Yeah, I think there's one difference that I find rather disturbing as a German, uh, which is that um, after voting, you can see how you compare to the rest of the audience, and you can see the majority majority's vote in a very granular way. And um, Germany, unlike uh, British or American audiences, have um, uh, a super high tendency to correct their vote after voting uh, and move closer to the majority. <laughs> yes. Really? <laughs> that is uh, slightly worrying. <laughs> yes. Unless they're voting for the right party, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, We're I not a majority party. No, yet, not yet. yet. <laughs> on, on the way to you. I, I come back to you on that point in a second. But, um, and, and Marie, you made a very powerful point about emotions. I mean, how important are emotions in political campaigning? I'm just uh, so happy that there's no second vote, that you can't correct your vote after oh. the election. <laughs> <laughs> um, so emotions, I was actually thinking about it. Like the... The one point I put out there was strategy, and I think after what I heard, um, it makes sense because you all have a, at least the three of you have a very concrete goal that you want to get to, and then you use different means or maybe even similar means with big publishers to um, to get there. And I think it's really important to set yourself that goal very clearly. What's the change in behavior that you want to achieve? And in terms of um, emotions, I think in the beginning, as I said, like for the growth of what we did, it was very much driven by I stories. Like I... You know, I learned that Europe matters for me because I saw the Greek guy who uh, had his salary half by Angela Merkel and was unhappy by it. And I met him on the like gas station in front of, uh, I don't know, this, these kind of, uh, like, uh, how did I come to vote or how or why, why did I start the movement? Or these stories are the ones that I think people can connect to. And then if you somehow expand it a bit, um, I think it's very powerful. And the same is now, I think, true for the campaign. I mean, I, I tell less stories of, of myself and how I got to vault, but I, I do have to tell stories about individuals somewhere that um, maybe the audience can, can feel with or can identify with. So break it down to one person who's affected in some way and you offer a solution to that. Yeah, I think it's like you, you tell a story, people somehow get the context and the sentiment that this produces and then you like you embed it into your narrative and say that's why I got the solution basically and say like we all need to work together in Europe and then we, everything will be solved you know like that's a bit I think where you have to have to go 
I mean, Peter, we talked about it before that you um, obviously work a lot for advertisers, for instance, who have budget and can test the messages over and over again. And we talked about how, how little budget you had and that sometimes prevented you from even being on the ballot in France, for instance. Um, how, how important is budget? Because no one in the audience thought it was important. Uh, I think it is important, but I think the message is more important. With the, with the bad message, you can spend a lot of budget but don't get anywhere. Um, uh, in terms of testing and optimizing, um, I think that uh, to that brands are quite good at um, putting their message out there because they have a long, um, long history of doing that and optimizing that and, that. and I think these campaigns from the Gillette campaign that you mentioned or um, um, even the uh, Edeka campaign with Friedrich Liechtenstein a few years ago. There are many campaigns that people remember over a long period of time. And I think they put, pick their topics very, very carefully on in what context they position themselves. And I th think that's an overall trend that brands think more about what um, related topic or what context they want to be um, they want to be seen in rather than how do I put my very narrow message out there to that I have a very great no, new product in my product portfolio okay. and that's typically what we yeah. help our brands also with to um, understand the context that they want to position themselves in rather than uh, promoting the uh, their their favorite product. There's one supermarket that wanted to advertise with that with us and make it all about the fondant au chocolat, uh, which should be promoted across our publisher network. And I and I don't even know what a fondant au chocolat is. Tastes very well. It's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. it's, it sounds delicious. Yeah. <laughs> great, great. But I think um, there was uh, uh, more relevance around uh, nutrition and um, and those type of questions. You. Yeah, I wanted to pick up the, the, the point on testing and emotions, right? So what, what I always say to my team, it's always best to test. And you always need to test before you roll it out, right? How and do you do it? Yeah, so let, let me come to how, how, how we do it and, and, and maybe with the, examples, with the example of emotion. So um, I agree 100% that you need to touch people here and not just here. And I think that's the biggest mistake that a lot of people make when they start campaigning or lobbying, that they only talk to the mind and the rationality that we don't really have as humans or, you know, that is very kind of shaped by biases and don't talk about to, to the heart and the, the kind of the emotions. And it was interesting what you said, you know, even little words like we help people decide what they should get into their family, right? Which is a very different message to what you should get for you as yourself because family has a whole range of different emotions um, that, that it triggers within me, no? But we also see that there are differences between countries. So let's use just the UK and Germany as an example. So, um, you know, as I said, we, we work a lot with the BBC in the UK and um, we always um, try to make our technologies as and the things we fund as experienceable as possible, no? So we had this kind of um, uh, uh, feature with the BBC on something that we funded for old people who are lonely because old people, you know, loneliness in, in, in an aging society is a huge issue and then we supported this technology that basically is a kind of um, platform that people can call when they are lonely 
and they get connected to somebody and matched up with somebody automatically so that they have somebody to talk to. Super simple, technologically not, not difficult, but super effective because, you know, 10,000 of old people are calling each month because they have nobody else to talk to, right? Mm -hmm. And now to kind of, you know, how we wanted to bring that to, to Germany. So um, the BBC clip is something that I then showed to some journalists here in Germany because we w talked about how can we maybe replicate a similar show here in Germany. And um, the UK clip was so, I mean, it was so emotional. There was this old man who was talking about how he met his wife after the war and then she died from dementia and he is super lonely. And like, even when I think about it, you know, I, I start <laughs> feeling very emotional. It, it it really rips your heart out, no? And I showed it to the German journalist, and she said, um, I think this is too much. It's a bit over the top. Yeah, there's quite a difference in cultures <laughs> here. I know. It's a bit over, right? right? Um, you don't do this emotion. Uh-huh, right? right? Yeah. Uh, which is obviously ridiculous, because also Germans have emotions, no? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, for, they for the... They don't like to show it, but they do have it. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so uh, you know, and so, so basically you do need to test the tonality of your emotional message with the people who it is supposed to reach and test it across different cultural contexts. It needs to be built up a bit differently. What's interesting is that we heard a lot of positive campaigns from you, from you, from you, about you know, wanting something that, yeah, people tend to agree with. Uh, a lot of people seem to think that for campaigning, you need to mobilize through conflict, right? So what, what's, what's your view on that? Does it have to be conflict? I mean, obviously for you, it doesn't, but why do people think it needs to be conflict? And I think that's what the Edeka or the Gillette campaign are sort of, you know, they, they, they want to go and mobilize through conflict and then often it backfires. I, I think in, in, in some frameworks, um, so you have to get to the emotion of the people, either it's in a positive or negative emotion. Um, so in some circumstances, it makes sense for somebody to, to, um, to get to the negative emotions, but I don't th uh, think in most cases it's not sustainable for you as a communicator and your brand because when you're um, going to get the negative emotion, your brand and you as a communicator, you always like um, you are uh, correlated with this negative emotion. And I think positive emotions are more sustainable um, for example, the leave um, campaign, uh, of course, they um, try to get to the negative emotions of, um, of the people. Um, but, and it worked, and it had a huge impact, but I don't think that it is uh, like an, a good um, uh, campaign because um, it's not sustainable. Because obviously, the basis of this campaign was like fake news and um, a lot of things that are not true. And I think positive campaigns are more sustainable. Appears that from your empirical perspective. Yeah, I think it's n uh, not necessarily and unrelated to opinion perspective. Um, not necessarily about conflict-based uh, campaigning, but often discussion-based and debate. There are public debates that are that many people uh, are emotional about, like for example, gender questions, that of course even cause conflicts in uh, in societies. But it's more, much more than a uh, much more transformational uh, discussion that is. Um, that drives high awareness. Just in the political realm, I think it would have been so much easier for the last two years to just uh, be very negative and uh, like not restricted in our wording by our common human sense. Um, uh, for example, I mean the like the the poster that um, hangs uh, or hangs in Brandenburg when I go out there, uh, um, which my mother always points out to me, is um, I will say it in German now uh, from the NPD. It, it says. Um, Geld für meine Oma, nicht für Sinti und Roma. Um, and a lot of people 
chuckle basically means like give money to my uh, grandmother, not to the uh, Sinti and Roma. And I mean, there were like many times when I was like, I don't know, tweeting also, and I thought if I can just say, you know, like ag aggressively now uh, what I think about you, then it would be uh, probably a lot of people would retweet it and it would be more interesting than saying, you know, we should uh, find a common solution here. I think that's one thing that I found. And the other the second thing I... But you did stick to the positive campaigning. Right? Uh, yes, yeah. but uh, that's actually where I'm coming to because, yeah. I mean, even though our message is extremely hopeful and we say we can actually solve this, we can build a common European future together and we, we are the party that wants to be the positive um, future, I do see that you always play also with the, the discontent of people, what people are actually not happy about. And actually also Obama did that in his Yes, We Can... Uh, campaign, it was like, I see the mother who is like unhappy about, so there's a lot of like negative examples being taken constantly where people are angry or frustrated about certain areas and then you say, yes, we can solve this and yes, we can uh, overcome this. So I don't really buy this only hopeful message uh, or like messaging um, in that campaign either. Interesting. How did you deal with Facebook? I know you uh, ran quite an interesting campaign about Facebook. Yeah, so, I'm sorry, to your point when you were talking about like not responding to negativity, I, I would say um, a, new, a new shift to that, uh, as just an aside, is, is trolls love attention. And a lot of that's even being fueled by bots and things like that. And, the, and truly, uh, to quote Michelle Obama, you know, when they go low, you go high. But it, in the digital space, it's really important. Just ignore it because they need that fodder. Facebook. So uh, one of our most recent campaigns with Mozilla is when Cambridge Analytica uh, broke out, a lot of people were clamoring of like, delete Facebook and we're done with that. And like, just that, that's what's gonna show them and we're just burning it all down to the ground. And Mozilla took a step back and realizing because we're a, a global nonprofit, how Facebook has become integral to people's internet access across the world and how they communicate even with their families through WhatsApp and it's their only means of communication it's a very privileged statement to say, oh, well, I'm just done with Facebook, just delete it. And instead, we once again looked at um, how we can provide solutions and easy, actionable items to people. And in this case, we did that for regulators. As we know with technology moving so quickly, it can be very difficult for our political figures to really have all the answers on what we can be doing about these, uh, these major uh, tech monopolies. So in February, we wrote a letter alongside 40 other organizations to Facebook to release a public API that would allow researchers to uh, look at how public ads, uh, uh, political ads, are affecting people. And in uh, late March, we got together with 10 researchers and actually came up with guidelines on what this public API uh, should, should follow in order for it to be best for these researchers. As you may or may not know, Facebook didn't, they did release an API and it did not meet these guidelines uh, by far. So the European Commission actually reached out to Mozilla and said, hey, can we, can we see your guidelines? And why or why not, you know, what, what makes them good and why, why should we be asking for this? And they brought our guidelines into private conversations with Facebook and Twitter. Uh, they also, the VP of the European Commission, also met with, our, uh, uh, with a number of the Silicon Valley uh, heads uh, just last month. 
And we see this as uh, a huge success. While it is less of a public campaign, we do see this as a success because it's exactly where uh, Mozilla really wants to be positioning itself in using its researchers and resources and our backing and, and face as a tech company to be providing and, and pushing uh, major companies to be creating better tools, whether it's small things like toys for kids to these global social networks or other materials. Now, have they responded to that? Are they positive about that sort of change? Yes, it's it's getting both the public and the regulars. It's it's by providing easy solutions and, and providing guidance, it, it can uh, help with government actually putting uh, action on to, to these companies. I mean, Valerie, the um, digitalization has obviously changed campaigning quite a bit. I mean, what's what's your view on that? Is there, you know, the, the viral button you can press or is that something people dream of to come up with another ice bucket challenge? Yeah, I think one of the most interesting shifts that I guess every one of you can could also use is that campaigning is beca can become a lot more personalized and that we as individuals can really do a lot of campaigning through our own personal accounts, right? So a concrete example, um, whereas, you know, the thing, uh, the, the, the digital skills campaign in the, in the UK was very much driven through Nesta's kind of company organizational identity, right? Um, what we've done here in Germany was very much driven through me as a person and kind of like the face of um, Nesta because two years ago when we wanted to do more in Germany, uh, n almost nobody knew Nesta. So in a lot of countries we have a lot of visibility and are very well known, but um, here not at all. And um, you know, when we, when we started, I went to our CEO and said, I think we should be doing more. And then he said, this is the kind of person you know he is. He said, Valerie, that's great. Go be an entrepreneur. And so we're like, okay, we go to Germany with very little budget, no, and we kind of need to even need to build up visibility in the brand. So um, what we've done is that um, we have pushed a lot of our messages of our campaigning through my own personal accounts. And why is that? Because that's, I think, something we also see. It's not just that people like to be triggered with their emotions, but People like people, and social media is called social media because you know we are interested. We are on Facebook and on, on Twitter and on Instagram, not because we initially wanted to follow some organizations with a logo, but because we are interested in what people do, right? So that's something that we've done a lot. And can I can I use this thing and draw something? Yeah, sure. Because I think that will like that's what we did for me, and so that you have something that is practical that you could take away. Um, that's a good point. Um, I, will, I will then ask all the other panelists for sort of their big final piece of advice for everyone and then open yeah, it up to so questions. So basically, so when, so if you are thinking about, um, th that's what I get asked a lot. So if, if I want to do something through my own channels, how, how do I strike the balance between being professional and being private, right? And so what we've done for me and what, what you know, various other people who are really kind of channeling their organizational messages through their, them themselves is that they start with something very simple. So what we've done is we selected four topics and things that I would talk about. So everything that is on my social media is, 
is falling into the, those four buckets, right? And so for me, one of the buckets is digitalization and tech for good. Another kind of bucket, another topic is women in tech and women in leadership. Another one for me is um, is uh, travel because I do traveling a lot. And another one is kind of dancing and sports because that's what I also do. So what we basically selected is kind of topics that professionally I want to talk about, but then we also added a few personal elements because, again, on social media, you are interested in the person rather than in the organization. And, and um, it's remarkable what kind of impact that has had because um, it allows me to stay in touch and build up a kind of... A connection to people, to even politicians or other organizations, and people in organizations that we want to work with and influence. And through talking about these even personal topics, what happens is I come into a meeting, I haven't seen somebody for five months, and the person says, oh, it's, it's been great following you on everything that you've done, and I saw that yesterday your plane was delayed. Oh, I always have that when I fly from Frankfurt to Berlin, and my plane is always delayed. And suddenly you have this connection, which you wouldn't have had if we had just channeled it through Nesta. No? So what basically you could do to, you know, tomorrow or tonight is that you think about what are the topics that would be relevant for me and that I want to talk about, and then you can basically use that as a little bit of a framework for how you kind of take things you want to campaign for, but put it into a kind of personal format. And per personal doesn't mean private, just mm -hmm. as a fine point, right? So personal means that you show parts of yourself that you want to show, but it doesn't have to be private. So, you know, my my husband, my family, my um, kind of our weekends, our holidays, they aren't, they are never on Twitter and Facebook because I took the decision to not show that. But it doesn't mean that I can't show that I am more than just somebody from Nesta that, you know, I, I have hobbies, I, I like things, I have things that I care about. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, people matter. I mean, that's what you clearly outlined here, the more so through digitalization. Bettina, um, you've run quite a bit, you know, quite a few campaigns, some involving big name celebrities. What's your experience with bringing in those big hitters? Well, it can be very beautiful, particularly if these hitters uh, can recur to networks that you don't have access to. So you work with a celebrity, other celebrities might then come on the bandwagon, etc. It's very beautiful. And it has a lot of power. Where you need to be careful, we talked about budget, is that an organization, when uh, the organization brings in a high-level celebrity, can end up in celebrity maintenance. So I had one case of an international organization who got someone really famous on board, doing great stuff, but afterwards you had a team of 10, uh, almost only catering for the needs of that person, etc. And a, ca a campaign that had an important outcome uh, still cost a, an, an amount of money that I would rather not say anything about. So just be very, very careful. Celebrities do work, but think about the scope and the contracting very, very well. Now, there are other examples that was not uh, something I was uh, uh, involved in, but Weight Watchers, for instance, they involved um, DJ Khaled uh, into their campaigning. And that was a very interesting one because DJ Khaled had a very different audience. So it was not only them talking how we got this guy on, on board, but him sharing via his people like people uh, accounts uh, his stories and this way they got a completely different audience and different coolness factor than that what they would have been able to do another thing is you need to be careful uh, if you involve someone um, uh, important about who owns the message. I was an interim CEO of an organization uh, where uh, we wanted to have 
a visualization of a campaign that was very much figure-based, so, so state of something across Europe. So the idea was to bring photographers, renowned photographers, in to visualize the national situations. Beautiful project. But the thing is, the organization always thinks, well, these photographers should just visualize those messages, those heads and figures, so they go to someone with that disease and show how they lived. But a very artistic photographer will never go and just uh, uh, act on what you think they should be doing. And they did an excellent campaign, but again, the relationship with the photographers was really taking a lot of uh, time and money. So please do it, but be super careful with it, okay? Powerful and it needs to be planned, needs to be tested, needs to be contracted. I see you nodding uh, there very much when I talk about uh, the uh, celebrities, and that is is uh, now maybe a hook to, for us to have a quick Q&A. We apologize because we are almost getting into our uh, time, but would you like to summarize the discussion before we do the Q&A? Um, thanks, Bettina. I think I'd leave it up to the panelists to give one piece of advice very briefly, like two sentences. What's the most important advice you want to give to people uh, who are starting or looking into a campaign, maybe starting with Pia, and then open it up for questions? Can I give two sentences and, and an example? You can. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I think <clears throat> I want to stress that um, questions can be very powerful to place your message. One more example: <clears throat> outside of the Opinary Network, um, we once uh, drove past the, um, the Tegel prison, and there was a big poster um, on the wall um, asking, "Would you say good morning to a murderer?" And I saw it from afar, and I started thinking, oh, would I? I don't know. Um, maybe yes. And then when you got closer, there was, an, uh, there was a byline. Uh, we're looking for uh, staff in our prison um, team. <laughs> That's not the vocabulary they used. But, um, but the message was powerful, because I would never have looked at uh, a job subscription from them if they wouldn't have started from a question that, met, that makes people think. And that can be a very powerful tool to reach people. It's a great example. Emery? Uh, the last words I would leave is definitely to always make sure that your messaging is visual, actionable, and emotional. Uh, my piece of advice, I talked about timing. And um, just as our members, the startups, we are always talking about a culture of second chance and uh, not to be afraid of failure. And I think it's a parallel to, to campaigning. Um, it's okay, it's okay to fail, even it's okay to fail with your campaign. Um, why? Because fear leads to um, bad decisions and wrong decisions. If, you have, if you're afraid of failing with your campaign, you're probably doing conformist stuff, boring stuff, and so don't be afraid of failing. Uh, well, when we, everything that we've done was based on trying something new and even you know, when we started to move from organizational communication campaign to more personalized through our employees, through our staff type campaign, there were a lot of people who didn't get it, who thought that it was, you know, weird and why should you do it differently? And the, the sentence I want to leave you with, which is true for everything I think that has been successful for us is, if you want to make a difference in the world, you have to do things differently. And you shouldn't be afraid of doing things differently. And if it feels right to you, and if you have a goal in mind, then you go there. No matter what falls in your way, you just kind of go. But you know, don't be afraid to do things differently. It's the only way you can make a difference. So my advice goes through this, if something feels right to you. I think uh, the first and most 
um, important step is that you actually um, like what you want to do because you're the most powerful, I think, if you actually believe that this is right, that you should be doing this. And the second um, part is that I think you should be analytically very precise about what kind of change you want to do because all of these campaigns had very clear goals and then maybe get some talented people to help you to execute it. I think they would also help. That's a really good point. Bettina, do you want to add to that? I don't want to add, but I would like you guys to ask your questions. Yes, of course. Um, thanks. My name is Sasha Device. I work for an organization called Crisis Action. Um, Crisis Action basically brings together powerful coalitions to compel the most powerful people in the world to protect those that have least power, which are civilians caught up in conflict often. Um, we just on, on one thing, one of the things that I struggle, and I was wondering if, if there's any tips here in the room, um, is the, the issue that's brought up, emotional versus factual. And I think that's something which is really important because, <clears throat> I mean, first of all, I don't agree it always has to be emotional. I mean, sometimes you have to identify what are the barriers of change, and sometimes it's the system just doesn't know about it, and you have to inform it. But there's other examples where I think there's a lot of campaigns that have been used where there's facts or, or what is called are facts are being used, like the, you know, the Brexit campaign as well or others, where, where facts are put, or information is put out there and sold as facts. And then the question is, how do you react to that and how can you react to that? If you just put out counterfacts, that makes it quite difficult. So, for example, a couple of days ago, I don't know if, you, if people saw it in Berlin, there were suddenly overnight billboards were put up about Syria. And it basically said, the war in Syria is over. Syrians have to go back. Syria needs you to build up the country again. And those that were interested about that, you know, the, the position of the UN and the German government is saying Syria is not safe for returns. So people who really look at that, they, they then look, called up the, that company that provides the, built those billboards and said, why do you give a platform for these people? It turned out that these people just did it overnight. They just vandalized that. And all across town, they just put up these billboards. And yeah, so how do you react to that? And how, you know, you can't really be, yeah. So it's this emotional versus factual. Thank you very much. Who would like to take this question? I know you now have a light in your face again, but so this way we remember your names. Um, so who would like to take this one? So I think, uh, I don't know the exact answer, but what I find interesting is that there's blatant lies, and then you have to try to, I guess, debunk. But there's also, and that's much more common, like um, selective information. You know, like you take the information that you want to take and to adhere to, or like, or to appeal to some form of emotion. And that is what I see constantly happening in politics as a general theme. No, that's what constantly people do. They tell one story, one side of the, of, of the whole problem, and then they make you feel an emotion because you only have that side of the story. So I don't know the, the perfect answer, but I think it's, I guess, uh, doing the same, kind of um, trying to, to tell the story and being more convincing in a way. Yeah? Speed is very important in that instance. Yeah. Well. So the rapid rebuttal. Yes. Anne-Marie, you wanted to add to this? Sure. It, it is an extremely uh, difficult issue that I, I, you know, there are still very few concrete answers for. But um, while certainly a, a slightly different scenario, uh, after the mass shootings in Parkland in Florida, um, people were shocked that a group of teenagers were having such an incredible impact on what is often an overlooked issue in the States. And what uh, this is this is a huge issue in the states, as you know, is um, when you get into media, a lot of times 
the facts are getting overshadowed because it's like opinion and they're trying to drive into that fear or just ridiculous statements or things like that. And what was amazing about what these teenagers did is uh, likely because they're also very affluent with, with social media and technology today, is they would pivot. Instead of fighting the person on the ridiculous statements they're making, they would make a joke about it. Mm. And then follow through with their continued messaging and their continued facts. You don't spend too much time on it. You don't fight them where they are and try to make sense to a nonsensical statement. You point out the joke that it is mm. and then continue with your message. Very beautiful. It brings it back to the Michelle Obama statement uh, once yeah. again, actually. Uh, who else has a short question? And then we will ask for a short answer. Uh, hi, I'm Kirsten. I work in political communication. And my question would be to Damian. What do you think is the biggest challenge for a young politician to do campaigning today? It depends per country, to be honest. There's differences. But I mean, the, I think the overarching problem is that even if you reach a lot of people in your filter bubble, um, that might seem like a lot. That is, I mean, if I like calculate all the different people that saw me now, I would probably get to like maybe 20,000, 40,000 people in just via me, which is super cool, but like you need 200,000 votes to get elected. So to really get beyond the, the first and the second line of um, people that might hear from you via social networks is really difficult. And I, I think I would there stress again, maybe budget. If you have a campaign that actually looks so good that people want to follow it or want to donate to it. I mean, for example, crowdfunding is a nightmare because you need a lot of money to crowdfund well, but that's another topic. Um, and, and then traditional media. And we, I mean, all of you said this as well. For us, uh, to get out of our bubbles, uh, traditional media was really, really important, to be honest. It's not that uh, like crazy, but it's true. Who would like to go next? Ariane? Hello. Um, so my question is, so when we think about social media, touching on what Anne-Marie said, you kind of typically have two camps. You have the people who are like, delete, delete Facebook, you know, and then those people are like, I have nothing to hide. So what's the, what's the problem? And like you said, sometimes it's not possible to just delete Facebook. And what comes to mind to me is, especially in uh, times of contentious politics, um, like in the Arab Spring, you've had... Um, cases where social media was a way to bring information that otherwise couldn't come across. But then you have examples like uh, Facebook pages, like we are all Khaled Said, and those pages were taken down by Facebook uh, because they were anonymous. Um, so my question is, if you guys have any examples on how social media architecture was actually negative to one of your campaigns, like the way that social media is constructed. <coughs> I mean, I think the development. No, I think the no, development. No negativity on social media. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, <laughs> so loving and friendly. I think if you think about how it's structured, I think for me the this development of Facebook of really now only letting through stuff that is paid. Um, I mean, is a development that was hugely limiting to a lot of grassroots movements, to a lot of actually publishers. To be honest, um, I mean, you probably know about this also, Pia. And I mean, this development I think makes it. 
a, a lot less attractive as a real democratic one. Uh, that's, I think, for me, one of the big examples of structuring that is really annoying. And then I think there's also <clears throat> limitation to what kind of messaging um, works there for uh, viral distribution, especially Facebook, Twitter, which is much more on the alarming and negative side than on the constructive idea, innovation-driven side. Okay, we have a question here. You still have your question? So, my question isn't uh, posed to any of you in particular, but I wanted to ask what uh, any of your opinions were in terms of uh, being able to ex uh, to propagate information that mightn't be uh, that could easily be e uh, be easily misconstrued or co-opted by uh, by, an, by an opposing or by uh, by an opposing sort of stra uh, strand of vote. For example, if you take the Yellow Vest movement in France, the Gilets Jaunes, it, it originally began as a protest about rising petrol prices, but it uh, eventually got co-opted uh, as uh, as a wide, as part of a wider populist right-wing movement. How would you uh, be able to sort of uh, uh, maintain control of a particular narrative such that something like that doesn't happen? Uh, um, my name is Jeremy. I uh, work for uh, um, I, uh, <coughs> I work for a signals intelligence think tank uh, in Australia uh, uh, called Global Hobo. Okay. Thank you very much, Jeremy. So this is an interesting one. You launch a great campaign. It's hijacked. Hmm. Who would like to take that one? I can't give you the whole answer. I think you know everybody needs to pitch in. But one of the things that we are doing to work against that, no? Is that before we start the campaign, there are various other people in, on social media who have a lot of clout and have a lot of reach, and they are ready to go and to help us spread the message before we even start. So, you know, that comes back to strategy and partnership. But if, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you launch something and then negative and the kind of, you know, populist or the, 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 you know, the, the kind of troll voices are there first. And then it's really difficult to flip it around. So making sure that you have a very positive start and, you know, have allies who can, you know, push the message and who even kind of applaud and say, this is good and this is important, because that is another interesting psychological thing, especially when we deal with topics that cause a lot of uncertainty in people. We as people are looking around and waiting for others to act first and see how we behave our, ourselves. So you want to make sure that your allies are the first ones responding and saying, this is great. And then other people who might not really have had an opinion before and say, okay, this is great, then it must be great. And then I can like it and share it. And also when it comes to preparing, um, you have to make up your mind, you have to think of um, who could um, hijack my, my campaign and how could he or she do it. And you have to, you have to like build um, strategies against those scenarios. So make up your mind um, what maybe is a weakness of a campaign or on which field somebody could hijack your ca uh, campaign and then build strategies to prevent that. You wanted to add to it, Anari? No, no. Oh, I would just add, these are extremely much better points than I was going to make. <laughs> Research and testing is extremely important, and uh, especially if you have any imagery uh, going along with your campaign yes. to, to see if there's, especially for those in, in like sub-internet spaces, not just on a global element, but really what's on the deep web, 
to make sure that it can't be used. Yes. And the gilet jaune could be uh, the topic of another panel discussion, actually, because it's so grassroots that for Mr. Macron and whoever that is, it's impossible to negotiate because you don't even know with whom to negotiate and on what. But, um, <laughs> but that we can do another day. Uh, who else would like to to a, a raise a question, maybe one or two, and then we close, because we would like to, you to be able to get back to work or to start <laughs> another type of work. So who would like to? Yes. Hi, yeah. Hi I'm Rickson. I work in governmental affairs at Bosch at the moment. And um, talking about preparation of campaigns, what do you think, for in the example of Gillette or Edeka, what was the mistake in the preparation with the be the best a man or the best a man can be. So what was going wrong, first of all, that the, they didn't know that the campaign would backfire to them? I think you said it already, it's, it's testing. Would have Edeka tested this campaign? I think 100, properly testing. I think 100% they um, should know beforehand that it could uh, backfire at this campaign. So testing for this, that's yes. good. Yes. And but I still I, wonder with the Edeka, whether on another market that would have worked. But Gillette, I was very surprised they didn't set, test uh, more than that on the international market. Pia. But I think there remains a, a risk that can't be um, analyzed ahead of a campaign. And then I think there is always sometimes a rough calculation how many people will absolutely dislike it and um, disagree with the message and how many people you win uh, in addition to your core or, uh, target group uh, who likes the message. And that's a very important point because uh, we discussed that earlier that no campaign, no gain. So the safer you play it, the less you will be out there. So sometimes exactly that thing, if the first uh, 50,000 people love it, because it's controversial, it will remain famous positively for life. So it's a, it's a gamble, actually, and you need and to see yeah. what you do, and you have to test it before. Yeah, just, on, yeah, on those as well. I think it was too obvious. Um, I think it was obvious what they were doing, and you can use conflict to mobilize against the co you know, for a cause or against a cause, but if it's so obvious it's about shopping at Edeka, and you're starting conflict because of that, I think people are smarter than that, and they see through it. And can I just add, add one thing on conflict? Um, when, whenever you do anything, there will be conflict and there will always be people who say this is shitty and they don't like it. And in 99% of the cases, it has nothing to do with you or your campaign, but with a lot of different other factors and issues they have with themselves. Um, and it's very important for you to remember that, especially when you, when you campaign with a lot of personal visibility, because you know you, you you launch something as you said you are personally excited about it you put your heart and soul into it and then people come and criticize and say mean things and you know it's 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 important that you expect that this will happen and that you stick to your allies and that you know you kind of have a bit of a protective shield around you of people mm -hmm. who give you critical feedback obviously but who support you and it allows you to cut out the negative voices who that will always be there no matter what you do I think the good advice is also interesting. It comes in floods at some point, you know, like people trying to help you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, that already sounds like nice final statements. Is there any urgent question or should I leave it over I to Oliver again? Yeah, thank you so much. I know we uh, overran a little bit, but there's so much to talk about. And I think the topic hit a nerve and we have such great experts here today. So thank you so much. If you want to hear more about this, we have a podcast called Speak Like a CEO, which I and Alina host, who is also here. Um, 
Lena's over there. So Lena and I host this weekly podcast. It's called Speak Like a CEO. And this will be an episode on Speak Like a CEO. And we also talk to founders and CEOs on a weekly basis, talk about topics like campaigning and all other aspects of communications. Um, we also have snippets of all these wonderful people on social, obviously, on our social channels. So feel free to follow us or check it out. We also have an ebook uh, called No Campaign, No Gain, mostly thanks to Ariane here, who's done the heavy lifting on that. We look at 16 lead or the 16 most important and most impressive political campaigns from Churchill to Macron to Trump um, to think about what do these campaigns teach us, instruct us for campaigning in other areas of life. So you will get a copy of that in your inbox if you've signed up to this event. If not, obviously you can download it on speaklikeaceo.org and on ewebsicommunications.com um, or just ask one of us and we're happy to send you a copy. Uh, feel free to forward it. Same for the podcast. Feel free to forward it. And enough of the advertising now. So thank you very much. 